It is when you praise God in accordance with the way in which Scripture commends us to praise Him that your response to your circumstances around you starts to fit with the biblical blueprint that God gives us in the Bible. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part three of Blessing God for Every Spiritual Blessing from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul continues his study through the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, which lists the spiritual blessings of believers. We now come to verse 4, where we see the first theological truth, God's unconditional election of believers. Believers did not contribute in any way to God's choosing. Rather, God freely chose believers as an appeal to His grace before the foundation of the world. This doctrine should cause us to praise God. Pastor Paul argues that the doctrine of election is foremost among the doctrines of the Christian faith that displays God's unmerited kindness towards sinners. Pastor Paul warns us, though, that we cannot praise God unless we've been reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. Now, how should the doctrine of election cause us to praise God? Well, here's part three of Blessing God for Every Spiritual Blessing. And we pick up with Pastor Paul reminding us of how we are to bless God. Last week, we looked at verse three of chapter one, and the question that we were trying to answer is, how do I bless God? How do I bless God? The reason why that was perhaps the most important question to ask of that text is because Paul opens with a simple statement and yet incredibly profound, blessed is God. Blessed is God. And as I argued, if you ponder that reality for any length of time, there is a subtle command that issues forth to us that we are to bless him. So how do I bless God? And the answer, if you remember back to last week, was that you need to know how God has blessed you. The way in which you bless God is to know how he has blessed you. As we train our hearts in the way of gospel truths, we respond with praise. And it cannot be the other way around. It has to begin with an acknowledgement of how it is that God has blessed us. And the more accurately we know God's blessing in our lives, the more biblical our praise will be of him. God commends us to study his word in part so that we understand the manner in which he's blessed us. And as our fickle hearts come to terms with how he has blessed us, so our praise, our lives align more and more and more with what he would have us look like as Christians. We carry on in that same vein this evening because what Paul begins to do now in verses 4 and following is to explain more fully the blessing we have received. If you remember back, I said verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians 
is his message of the first three chapters of the book in miniature. He gives us in miniature format what he will go on to explain for several chapters. And we begin tonight by looking at the unrolling of God's blessing in our lives. We're into the longest sentence in the book. Though it is not represented as such in the English text, this is one long sentence in the original. Paul cannot contain himself as he strives to explain to us how God has blessed us with the purpose that we would praise God in response. That remains Paul's purpose, to bring about praise in the Ephesians toward God. And as this text comes to us this evening, as God's inspired and inerrant word, it is the same for us. You can see that that's Paul's aim just by looking in a very cursory manner at this paragraph. Notice the common refrain three times over to the praise of his glory. One of them is found this evening in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Again in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And then a third time in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Paul is not hiding his motive here. He is unpacking God's manifold blessing in our lives in order to elicit praise from us. Our desire must be, as we come to this text, to praise God and to do so in a manner that honors him. I truly believe it is the most important thing that you will do this week. Praising God is the most important thing you will do this week. More important than anything that might present itself as urgent and demanding your attention. More important than any fires that you need to put out in the near vicinity of your world is the, what can seem, all-too-distant priority of praising God. Because it is when you praise God that your worldview starts to align with a biblical worldview. It is when you praise God in accordance with the way in which Scripture commends us to praise Him that your response to your circumstances around you starts to fit with the biblical blueprint that God gives us in the Bible. It is when you praise God in the way that Ephesians 1 commends us to praise him, that your feet start to walk a God-honoring path. Your hands give themselves to God-honoring tasks, and your lips speak God-honoring words. To put it in the negative, if you fail to give yourself to praise of God this week, things will start to unravel in your life very quickly. If praise is not of the utmost importance in your life, things will come off the rails very quickly. I guarantee you, you cannot live a life that honors God until your praise of him is where it ought to be, which is of the utmost priority. So we are desperate to know this evening, how is it my heart will pulsate with praise towards God? How might I find that kind of response in my heart as a norm, as a standard, day by day? How can I ensure the orientation of my heart is towards God in biblical praise? 
I want to say right up front, if you are not reconciled to God, you cannot praise him. If you're not reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, you cannot praise God in the way that Paul pictures the Ephesian Christians praising God. He has no space for your praise. God won't receive your praise. He won't listen. I got in some trouble not that long ago for preaching this very truth. I was preaching in a context that was somewhat different from the circles in which I tend to find myself, very different flavor of Christianity. And in passing, not even planned, in passing in a sermon, I said, if you are not reconciled to God, he does not hear your prayers. At the end of the sermon, I sat down next to my darling wife, who always reads the situation better than I do. And she leant over to me and she said, I hope you're ready. And I said, for what? She said, here they come. And sure enough, there was a long line of people who wanted me to explain myself as it relates to the comment I made, if you are not reconciled to God, he does not hear your prayers. But I stand by it. It's biblical. It is the gospel. It is the the negative side of the gospel. We're ostracized from God by virtue of our sin. And our sin puts such a chasm between us and God that we are foolish to think that he has time for us, benevolence for us, favor for us, if that sin has not in some way been accounted for. And so in the same vein this evening, understand right from the very beginning, we cannot praise God unless you have first and foremost been reconciled to him through the death of his son. If you are here this evening and you know that you have not been reconciled to God, we are so happy that you're with us. We welcome you. Please be reconciled to God. Trust that Jesus has made a payment for sin and that he can make you right before a holy God. Now to everyone else, and I assume that most here this evening are saved by the gospel of grace. My encouragement to you would be to bring people to this church who you know have not been reconciled to God. God has put them in your life. And I know that the notion of evangelizing, of sharing the gospel can be very, very daunting. I know that that cripples us at times with fear and in the weeks and months ahead we'll talk about how we share the gospel and why it need not be a fearful thing but a wonderful thing but for now let me just encourage you as a member of this church to be bringing people inviting friends who you know are not reconciled to God there will be an explanation of the gospel from this pulpit Whoever stands behind it will speak the truth concerning Jesus Christ. There will be an articulation of the gospel in our prayers and in our singing. And in our fellowship, transformed lives 
will be self-evident to anyone that cares to look. So bring people and pray with me that God would be pleased to save many through the ministry of this church. All of that is precursory to the text. How do we praise God? Where do those impulses come from? Paul lays out three truths that bring about praise in our heart toward God the Father. And they are truths that are causal in their relationship, like a a domino effect. Paul is charting a course of theological truth, and these truths are not disconnected nor isolated, but one flows on from the other. The first truth that Paul gives us is that God chose us. He speaks of God's election. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God chose you to be a Christian. You did not choose him, but he chose you. And you read about this doctrine in all manner of books and commentaries, commonly referred to as the doctrine of election. And many would add the word unconditional. We speak about this doctrine as unconditional election. The reason being so as to emphasize the point that you contributed nothing to God's choosing of you. He was not bound by anything. He wasn't bound by you, your behavior, your inclinations. He was not bound by time or circumstances. No one and nothing put any contingencies on God when he chose you. Unconditional election. That's why Paul, I believe, puts the time stamp here in verse 4. He could easily have said, even as he chose us in him, that we should be holy and blameless before him. But Paul adds a, a time stamp, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. Why? So as to impress upon us, this happened before you were. Before you were, God chose you and ordained that you would be saved. In that sense, we can say that God's choosing of you was an entirely free act. We talk about our freedoms. If you think about it, we're not as free as you might like to believe. We are constrained by many things. We are constrained by our circumstances. We're constrained by our relationships. We're constrained by our responsibilities. In a very real sense, I don't have much choice as to what I do tomorrow. And that's a good thing. But God, contrary to us, is the most free being in the entire universe. He is not constrained by anything. So then, why did he choose us? He was not constrained by anything, so why did he choose us? And the only thing left to appeal to once you recognize that nothing factored into his decision outside of himself, the only thing left is an appeal to his grace. Election is one of the doctrines, perhaps the doctrine, that most evidently manifests God's grace. 
Of all the doctrines we might speak about, election is foremost among them that puts on display his unmerited kindness towards sinners. I think Paul is even hinting at that with the refrain that we've looked at already this evening. I wonder if you notice how it changes subtly throughout the passage. Look again, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12 to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Now, I do think Paul is communicating, in essence, the same truth every time he writes those words, but the inflection is important. In verse 6, and in verse 6 alone, we find to the praise of his glorious grace. Why? Because that is where, in his sentence, grace, or I should say election, is most clearly in view. It's at the point that he brings election most clearly into view that he finds cause to praise God's glorious grace. Because election is foremost amongst the doctrines of the Christian faith that displays God's unmerited kindness. Not everyone believes what I've just said to you. There are many who would preach conditional election. They wouldn't call it that, but they would not call it unconditional election. There are many who would reason that God's choosing, God's predestining of us was predicated upon him seeing something in us that made us worthy of that choice. So you'll sometimes hear people say what God did as he foreknew us is to look down the corridors of time to see your disposition towards God, to see how you would be inclined to him. And upon that basis, he chose you. Many would ascribe to that understanding of election, and it robs God of his glory. It doesn't honor the death of Christ. It doesn't ascribe to God the glory that he deserves. And it doesn't correspond theologically with what we understand in the rest of the scriptures. If God were to look down the corridors of time, the only thing he would see is what a wretched sinner you would become. Apart from the fact that the text tells us he chose us before we were, apart from that, if he were to look down to see what you would be, he would find zero inclination in your heart toward him. Theologically, it does not correspond to say that his grace is conditioned upon you, because it's not. But it's a wonderful thing to affirm God's unconditional election, his choosing of you before the foundation of the world because of its implications. Consider that if it is true God chose you before you were as a free act, if your salvation has nothing to do with you but everything to do with God, there is zero chance that you are going to lose it. Now, that could not be true if you had contributed to it. If it was somehow a mix of God's choosing and you're leaning towards him, I would be terrified of losing my salvation. 
Because there are days when I am not leaning towards God. All of these doctrines of grace come together. If one falls, they all fall. As one stands, they all stand. As God chose you before the foundation of the world, you having contributed nothing to your salvation, you can be greatly comforted that your salvation is not going anywhere. It rests with God and God alone, and he will see you through to glory. And so as you meditate upon the doctrine of election, your heart can't but respond in praise to God. The doctrine of election is actually all the way through this text. It's most clear here as Paul uses languages, language of choosing and predestination. But as we walk through over the next few weeks, we'll see time and time again references to God's will and his plan. It's all the way through this text. Paul makes mention of it often Our hearts must find a resting point on it often. Pursue the discipline of thinking upon God's unconditional election as a means of bringing about praise in your heart toward the Father. Well, Paul goes on from there, that being the first truth. He then explains the result of such choosing even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is the result of his choosing. It was not arbitrary and it wasn't without purpose, but God chose us in order that we should be holy and blameless. Now those two words are two sides of the same gospel coin. Holy means pure, we've been set aside and cleansed, made righteous is the inference. Blameless means without blame, without spot or wrinkle, without defect before a holy God. We are holy and blameless. They complement one another. They're two sides of the same coin. And you can see, as we consider these truths, our right standing before God, because he declares us in Christ to be holy and blameless, the gospel is being brought into view. This is why Paul can't help himself saying over and over again in this passage, in him, in the beloved, through Jesus Christ. We mentioned last week Paul's favorite doctrine in Christ. How overarching and wide-sweeping it is in Paul's theology. And sure enough, in the three verses that are before us this evening, he keeps going back to Christ. Our relationship in him because our holy and blameless status is founded upon Christ's perfect life and his death on the cross and resurrection. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today, Pastor Paul stated that when we truly understand the doctrine of election, our response to the security of our salvation should be one of comfort. As Pastor Paul says, if our salvation has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God, there is zero chance we will lose it. God will see us through to glory. So praise be to God for this truth. We have been challenged to think on God's unconditional election as a means of bringing about praise in our heart towards the Father. 
Ephesians 1 verse 4 concludes by explaining that the result of God's choosing is that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Let's take comfort in this gospel truth. God declares believers holy and blameless in Christ. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Sunday's coming, and if you don't have a home church, we would welcome you to come worship with us at 10.30 a.m. every Sunday. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Join us on Monday for part four of Blessing God for Every Spiritual Blessing. I'm Matt Williams. Hope you have a great weekend, and thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.